Amen. Thank you, Brother Nolan. Sounds like the day that we live in, and uh, if we don't see that, boy, we've really missed the picture. Open your Bibles this evening to Revelation chapter number 3. Revelation chapter 3, and tonight we wrap up our study of the seven churches in what we know as Asia Minor. And uh, the last seven weeks we've been looking at each one of these churches individually, and hopefully from each one we've learned some lesson that will be beneficial to our ministry here today. Revelation chapter 3, we begin reading in verse number 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou were cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white remnant, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyes salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasteneth. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne." He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Laodicea was located about 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia, and it was founded by Antiochus II about the middle of the 3rd century B.C. and, and actually named after his wife. It was an extremely wealthy city, and one of the historical evidences of that is the fact that when it was destroyed by an earthquake in 60 A.D., they were able to totally rebuild the city without any outside assistance. So you can well imagine the people that lived there might have been very proud of themselves to be able to uh, to do something like that. They didn't need anyone else and uh, uh, become proud of their self-sufficiency and you know, that's the way it is with human nature. Uh, there's always that danger when we excel at something. There's always that danger of us becoming prideful. But it's interesting to study this letter, in fact, all of the letters, and I've mentioned this before, to study these in the light of history itself, because when you do so, it's easy to see that the Lord used language that identified with their situations and surroundings. And that made it easy for, you know, the people actually reading this letter back then, easy for them to 
understand the story because they're familiar, you know, with with the city and their surroundings. And, and, and it's just amazing that without in any way interfering with man's free will, that God can work in history in such a way that in a particular city there is a church with a certain problem that in some way you know, identifies with the historical significance of, of that city. And, and we've already seen that, and we're going to see it again. The interesting thing about this letter, and unlike the others, is that, that there are no words of commendation. And not one time does the Lord say, you know, I know about your works, and I'm really happy about what you're doing. There's not one note of commendation whatsoever. It is all condemnation from the Lord. And so here we find the most scathing rebuke to be found in any of the seven letters. So let's look at it verse by verse and, and uh, consider, consider what God had to say to this particular church. It begins... In verse number 14, by speaking about the revelator himself, notice he identifies himself as the Amen. I'm certain that some folks have said Amen that have no idea what Amen even means. The word Amen means truth or so be it. Truth or so be it. I don't know if you've ever thought about it or not, but Jesus is the Amen of the Father. This is, this is one of His titles. He is the Amen. That is, He is the affirmation and the confirmation of God Himself. Whatever God has said, whatever God is, when Jesus came on the scene, He affirmed that. He confirmed that God is indeed what He claims to be. Jesus was the living proof of that. And that's why he can carry the title, the Amen. But he doesn't stop there. He is the Amen. And then he proceeds by saying, the faithful and the true. In John 18, verse number 37, Jesus said to Pilate, To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. And in every sense of the word, Jesus did exactly what He came to do. He has revealed to us the truth. And we can depend upon what He says because He is faithful and true. His name, and later on you're going to see in Revelation that His name is faithful and true. And so because of that, because of what He is, that's what He does. You can depend upon Him, as we talked about this morning, because of what God is, what God does proceeds from His person, from His being. And His attributes, looking at them, tell us what we can expect from God. When it comes to Jesus, we expect the truth, and we expect that He'll be faithful in what He has said, and that He'll carry out what He has promised. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and tells us a third thing about the revelator, and that is that he is the, notice the beginning of the creation. 
Now that does not mean that he was the first of God's created beings. That, that is not at all what he is saying there. We know that because Jesus is eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's John chapter number 1. So Jesus was eternal, is eternal. He had no beginning, he has no end. This statement here is simply implying that all of creation had its beginning in the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.16 tells us that it was by Him that all things were created, and by Him all things consist. That is, He continues to hold everything together. He keeps the universe running even to this very day. And so this is the one writing the letter. Now, you know, it's one thing for someone to write you a letter, and maybe they're, maybe they're criticizing you, or commending you, or giving you counsel, or making a request, or whatever whatever it is, and, uh, you know, you have to take into consideration the source, that is, who it is that's writing to you. Well, I'll tell you what, whenever you just picture this church here, all of the members meeting together and the pastor standing up and reading this letter, and already from this first verse, just think about that for a little while. This is the one that is writing to them. This is the same one that's speaking to us tonight through his word, and that's why he deserves our utmost attention. Now, having having spoken of the revelator himself, he speaks concerning the rebuke of the church in verse number 15. And it doesn't take long to figure out what it is. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou were cold or hot. And uh, so this is the charge against them, verse number 16, because they are lukewarm. Now, some have suggested that he might have used this analogy because there were thermal springs there in Laodicea. And in fact, they were known for that, and they received their water through these aqueducts and so lukewarmness was something that they could very well identify with. And, and again, I say, you know, if that's the case, it's amazing that God can find a church in a city that's known for lukewarm water, where the church is known for a lukewarm problem, you see. But God can do stuff like that, and it's no problem for Him. But the interesting thing is, notice He tells them that it would be better if they were cold or hot. Now, the word hot does not surprise us. I mean, after all, that's what God desires. But sometimes, you know, we get confused by this statement uh, about the fact that God said it would even be better if, you know, if you were cold. We think about hot, and that word hot, the particular Greek word, is the same word that we get the English word zeal from. It's the same word that the word zealot came from, and that is, it means boiling over. It speaks about enthusiasm. It speaks about spiritual fervor. We talk about, you know, a church being on fire for God. Well, that's what, that's what red hot would be. That's the idea. That's the idea. That's what a church should be. But coal means just the opposite of that. It's describing a people who have no interest or no enthusiasm regarding spiritual things. And you know people like that. 
regardless, you know, of what you're talking about, you can be talking about what a wonderful day you had in church, how God spoke to your heart, how God ministered to your life, how wonderful it was to be with God's people, and they just sat there looking at you like a calf looking at a new gate. They can't figure it out. It makes no sense. They're not interested in it whatsoever. And you know people like that. They're just cold, they're indifferent, and they're callous. And, and it's amazing here, in a sense, that the Lord says, I, it would be better if you were cold than the condition that you're in. This word lukewarm speaks about somebody that is half-heartedly or superficially attached to Christ. Uh, that is, they do not manifest any of the Christian graces, you know, like love and joy and peace and gentleness and, and so forth. Uh, that's not evident in their life. There's no excitement. There's no real commitment to the things of the Lord. And uh, so this is what he's talking about. He said, you're just, you're just lukewarm. It's not that they deny God at all. But they have just no real interest, no enthusiasm for the things of the Lord. And so with that in mind, he says it would be better, it would be better if you, if you were cold. Now we look at that and we think, you know, that's the worst condition. That's the exact opposite of being red hot on fire, boiling over. So how can it be that he says it would be better off if you were cold? Well, think about it this way. It's easier to reach those who have no hope than those who entertain a false hope. The hardest people in all of the world to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ are those who think they're right and they're wrong. They've got a hope, but it's not a Bible-based hope. Look, there are a lot of Muslim folks think they're going to heaven. I mean, they're convinced of that. They don't have any doubt about it. They're willing to die for that belief. There are a lot of Church of Christ, a lot of cults, a lot of people that believe that they're saved and that they're going to heaven. They don't have any doubt about that. You meet people like that all of the time. And yet, just because they have a hope does not mean that their hope is going to come to fruition. And they are the hardest people to reach. For example, you think about somebody that's an alcoholic. It's a lot easier to reach somebody that is an alcoholic and realizes this is what I am. I am a drunk. I need help. You can help somebody like that. You cannot help the person who says, I don't have a problem. I can quit anytime I want to. I drink because I choose to drink, but I can quit any time I want to. There's nothing you can do to help people like that. They've got to get to the end of their rope. They've got to reach that point that they realize that they need help, that they actually have no hope. And, and, and this is why the Lord is saying it would be better if you were cold. In other words, there would be a better chance of this church uh, changing than in your lukewarm condition because, and you're going to see this even more vividly later on, they don't see their need to change. I mean, with them, they think everything is all right. And there's an old phrase that the hillbillies in Missouri use, uh, hunky-dory. Everything's hunky-dory, you know. It's just, it's just okay, no problem. We don't have a problem at all. That's their attitude. And the Lord said it'd be a whole lot better off if you realize you had a problem. Mark it down. There are a lot of churches that have serious problems with God, and yet, and yet... They don't see it. They don't believe it. 
they don't realize it. They think everything between them and God is just fine. They think they've got a wonderful church. Uh, just the other night, I, in fact, several times every night, I think I've listened to, uh, unintentionally listened to some of the ads from some of the churches in the Houston area. And they would have, uh, I suppose, some of the members might be paid people. I don't know. Since they pay some of the musicians and stuff like that, why wouldn't they pay these people? And they come out there, here's this sweet little family coming out saying, Oh, we've been attending here and it's just so wonderful and we are so blessed and we're raising our family here and, and, and what have you, you know. And they can feel like they've got the most wonderful church in all of the world, but that doesn't mean it's anywhere near what God wants it to be. And so he says it'd be better off if you were cold instead of lukewarm. Now notice verse 16. Here's the result, the result of their condition. Notice what he says. And boy, look, language could not get any stronger than this. I will spew thee out of my mouth. That is a picture of disappointment and disgust. It's like God saying, you make me sick. You make me want to vomit. And and, and he's simply saying here that he is going to repudiate those whose attachment to him is nominal and superficial. That I am going to spew you out of my mouth. This, This tells us that there cannot be any neutral ground. There cannot be any neutrality when we, you know, become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the Bible again and again emphasizes we're to love the Lord our God with what? Our whole heart. It is impossible to love God half-heartedly because half-heartedly is nothingness as far as God's concerned. Whatever we do for the Lord, if we don't do it with all of our heart, we come together to worship like this, if we don't have all of our heart in it, you know how much, you know how much of it is of any value to us? Zilch, zero, nada, nothing. It's nothing to God. That's why he said to the children of Israel, and remember as he was rebuking them uh, there in Malachi and describing their problem of giving to him the leftovers and what have you, and just going through the motions, and he spoke about... Now remember, think about the beautiful Levitical choir and what have you, all of this special music, and boy, you know, the musicians and the choir. And he said... Basically, and I'm paraphrasing, get that noise out of my ears. It was noise. It irritated the Lord. Now, we, you and I might listen to it and, you know, we might, we might think it's wonderful. Wow. We went to a gospel concert last night and it was so uplifting and it was so wonderful. And yet it just might be, it might be that God is saying, made me sick. Made me sick. That's what's going on in this church. He says, I will spew you out of my mouth. You know, lukewarmness has probably done more to harm the cause of Christ than anything else. Let me explain what I mean. The world in general is watching us. The world in general does not expect from others, those that, that do not profess to be Christians, those that are not in church, They do not expect from them what they expect from us. In other words, they hold us to a higher standard. And, well, they should. Because we ought to be different. We ought to live by a different standard. We're the children of God. But the whole sad fact of the matter is, sometimes as the world looks at us, they don't see any difference between us and the world. 
it's all the same other than the fact that we go to church and we carry a Bible and what have you. But other than that, we do all of the same stuff they do. They don't see any difference. And it's that attitude that is so devastating to the work of Christ. That's why again and again and again you hear people try to justify not going to church by saying what? Uh, Too many hypocrites in the church. And they're right. There are too many hypocrites in the church. Now, they shouldn't let... They shouldn't let that keep them away, I understand. That's no excuse on their part. But it certainly is one of the reasons why they don't want anything to do with what we've got. Because they see our attitude. That's why a lukewarm church is so dangerous to the cause of Christ. And the real danger is the Lord saying, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. You know... The one thing, I, it was so good, this afternoon Bev and I left and she handed me a, a, a guest card and uh, she was reading at the bottom what someone had said and, and, and they had been attending another church in the area and uh, they said down there that they had been attending for I think it was a year, wasn't it, hon? And uh, said, and this was their first time here, said, we had more people shake our hands and show themselves friendly and make us feel welcome in one visit than we had in a whole year in that church over there. Now, you know, that look, that is a wonderful testimony for this church in that regard. Let me tell you, the only thing that can make this church any better than any other church is the Lord Himself. If we let ourselves get lukewarm and the Lord says, I'm through with you, I'm out of here, I'm shutting it down, and He leaves. And that can happen. He can remove the candlestick. We've already talked about that. The Lord can move out. We can have the same building, the same choir, the same pastors. Everything can be exactly the same, but it will be absolutely useless. No more than a glorified social club. It's God that makes the difference. So when we're living under the threat that if you get lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth, we need to, we need to take that serious when God makes a threat like that because He doesn't lie. Now, notice verse number 17, and, and here we see the reason, the reason for their condition. And basically, I think we can put it all down in two areas. First of all, is the pride issue. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. You know, it's a sure sign of spiritual decay and pride when we start talking about ourselves. When we brag about ourselves and our possessions more than our Savior, it indicates our priorities are wrong. And that's what they're doing. Thou sayest. In other words, they've been boasting about this. We're rich. We're increased with goods. We don't have any need of anything. Can you imagine a church with that attitude? We don't need anything. We've got everything. We've got it under control. We have everything that we need. We are the perfect church. That's pride. The second thing has to do with ignorance. And he says... And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, they had been boasting about being rich, but notice they are too blind to see 
their true spiritual condition. And notice how God describes them. And remember, this is God's description of them. This is not what a neighbor thinks about the church. This is what the Lord Himself says about that church. He says, Thou art wretched. That means distressed. It's, a, it's the same word that Paul used in Romans chapter number 7 when he said, O wretched man that I am. Speaking about his vileness, his filthiness, and sinfulness of the flesh. O wretched man that I am. And the Lord says of this church, You're wretched. And then he goes on and he says, and miserable. That means literally pitiable. It means to be pitied. Now remember, here they are bragging with all of their self-confidence and all of their pride. And the Lord is saying in reality, you are to be pitied. Miserable. And then notice, poor. Now remember, they abounded in material goods, but he says they are poor. You know, most people don't know how to measure true wealth. The, you know, churches that have buildings that cost millions and millions of dollars, beautiful buildings, bulging bank accounts, and yet they are bankrupt when it comes to matters, things that matter the most. And that's what he's getting at here. I'm sure they didn't have a monetary issue. They had plenty of money. They said, we don't need anything. We're, we're rich. We've, we've got it all. But the Lord here, He says, no, you're poor. And a lot, lot of so-called rich people that are really poor, they think they're rich and they're not. And then He says, notice, and blind. That indicates they lack spiritual perception. And boy, I'll tell you, church in that condition does not stand to chance. These are people that... You know, to put it in everyday language, something we might say today, they don't have a clue. They don't have a clue what's going on. Now, we're going to pick up again on this in just a minute. It's going to come back to us. But you remember this phrase. He says, you're blind. You think you see, but you don't. And then, he says, and naked. That, that's a picture of poverty to the greatest extreme. You know, it's one thing to be poor to not have any food, it's one thing to be poor, you know, and to not be able to buy a new car. Uh, one thing to be poor, you know, and you can't buy the latest model of phone or television or whatever, but he says you're naked. You don't, and that's, that's just another way of saying you don't have anything. You don't have anything. You're absolutely naked. Now he deals with the remedy in verse 18 and 19. Notice what he says. Buy of me. And that's an important phrase because what he's talking about, you can't get anywhere else. So it's like him saying, you need to come to me. You're not going to find this somewhere else. Buy of me gold tried in the fire. And we know that gold is a, is a figure of speech having to do with righteousness here. And the fire, of course, is that which purifies the gold. And he's talking about the most pure form of gold. And that, that's what they needed. They needed the kind of righteousness that could only come from the Lord. They need it. Why? Well, because they don't have it. They don't have it. And the only place they can get it is from the Lord. And then he says, Buy of me gold tried in the fire. And then he says, white remnant. Now, here again, we go back to the history of Laodicea. And this is a city that was famous for the fact that they, they, they produced an unusual black wool. 
and they used it to make black garments. This city was famous for that. And they exported that to all of the Mediterranean world back at that time. And so it appears that, it appears what Jesus is saying here that in contrast to those black garments that you, that you could purchase on about any street corner there in Laodicea, their real need was what? White remnant that could be received only from the Lord. They needed righteousness. You know, if we try to if we try to make that of practical value, maybe it would help us to look at it like this, and that is that godliness has never been in style with the world, regardless of what generation, regardless of what century we're talking about. Godliness has never been anything that the world in general saw any need for. It's not something that impresses them. You know, it's amazing. You can be a God-fearing, God-loving, faithful church member. And I mean, you can be generous in your giving. You can be helpful to your neighbor. You can display all of the various graces that a Christian should. Loving and kind and you're, you're generous and everything like that. And all of those good things. And yet, you know what the world will see? The world's going to point out that one bad thing, that one negative thing that they can find about you. And, and so he's saying here that you folks need the righteousness that I alone can provide. Then he says, notice, here's something else they need. Not only gold tried in the fire and white raiment, but he says, I salve. Amazingly, this city was famous because of a medical school in Laodicea. There was a medical school there, and they would take the, they would take that, that, the, the water out of those thermal springs, that lukewarm water, and mix it with certain oils or mud or whatever it was, and, and they were famous for that. And it was supposedly, you know, had, uh, the emulsified mineral oil, had healing properties, and so, uh, this, this is a place you would go for your healing. And amazingly, in this same city is a church that is sick and in need of healing, and the particular healing that they need is what? They need eye salve. Why did they need that? Well, because he just told them, you're blind. You're blind. You, you're blind as a bat. You can't see what your needs are. And he says, by of me, I salve. You know, the Bible tells us in First Corinthians chapter number 2, the natural man receiveth not the things of God, neither can they know them, for they are spiritually discerned. The unsaved person cannot understand the things of God. And the reason for that is because it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life that enables us to understand God's Word. Now, you can teach your unsaved next-door neighbor the history of the Bible, but they'll never see the deeper truths of the Bible until, first of all, they've been born again. They need what only God can provide, and the great position in our life provides the Holy Spirit as our helper. And then notice, notice he says, as many as I love, verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, notice 
he is asserting his love, even though he is rebuking them throughout the letter. He has said nothing positive, nothing good about them. And notice, yet he says, I love you. I love you. You know, that's unconditional love. And as many as I love. Now remember, they're living under threat here. He, he, He says, you make me sick, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And yet there is a love that he has for them. And he says, as many as I love, I what? He doesn't say, I ignore their sin. I don't want to hurt their feelings. He doesn't say that. He says, I rebuke. Because God loves us, he rebukes our sinfulness. And then he says, and chasteneth. That simply means he gives us a spanking whenever we need it. And because of that, and by the way, you'll remember there in the book of Hebrews, it it tells us basically the same thing. And says, if we be without chastisement, then we're illegitimate. We're not even the children of God. If you can live any way you want, violating the standards of God's Word, ignoring the commandments of God, live any way you want, and you just live a life of rebellion against God, and God never chastises you for it, you're not saved. You mark it down, you're not saved, because if you are saved, God's going to hurt you. I don't know how to say it. God's going to hurt you. I, 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 can, you know, I can remember whenever Dad gave me a spanking, he spanked me till I hurt. That, when I carried over in us raising our kids, and, you know, it, there comes a time, especially, you know, boys, and they'll, they'll try to grit their teeth, you know, and just like you're not going to hurt me, I'm not going to try this time. Oh, yeah, they are, because I'm not going to quit until they do. And, and that's the way God, God is. And it's not because God doesn't care about us, it's because God loves us. He wants something better for us. And so whenever we knowingly get out of His will and we don't listen to His rebuke, you know, I think God always warns us before He spanks us. I really do. I, I, basically, that's the way it's worked with us raising children. I mean, you don't just one day grab them up by the collar and take them in there and beat the daylights out of them and they don't know what it's for. They know what it's for. Why? Because they've been warned. And the Lord says, whom I love, he says, I rebuke them, but I also chasten them. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, notice verse number 20, because here's the request. And that is Christ calling to these people. And remember that the Lord calls people to come to him, but he does not force them to do so. God is not going to make you yield to His will. God has given to each of us a will, and we can choose to basically do whatever we want to do. But notice in this picture, He's standing standing on the outside, knocking at the door, requesting entrance into their heart which would lead to spiritual fellowship. Because he said, if any man let me in, I'll come in and sup with him, have fellowship with him and he with me. We'll share together. Now, some have tried to point out, well, you know, this, this just has to do with the church. It has nothing to do with individuals. But that's not really true because although, notice, he is addressing a church. Notice the words here, any man. I'm knocking at the door, but and if any man, 
In other words, here in this bad church, if there was someone that really wanted to get things right with God, they could. They had an opportunity to repent of their sins and to make things right. And so there is a personal message here for all of those that are out of fellowship with Christ. Not something that is just given to us on a corporate level, but something that applies to us as individuals And the Lord, it's as though the Lord is saying, look, here's what's wrong, but I stand ready to forgive you. I stand ready to receive you if you will grant me entrance into your life. And then what's the reward? Notice verse number 21. Here's the reward. Actually, verse 21, and then he closes. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in His throne. Again, he speaks about being overcomers and tells us that the overcomers, what? They occupy the throne with Christ in the coming age. Remember remember what Paul said, that if we suffer with, with Him, that we'll also, what? Rule and reign with Him. Isn't that going to be a glorious day to think about that someday that we're going to reign with the Lord Jesus Christ? And I'll tell you, listen, it, folks, it makes a big difference in the way God uses us then and the manner in which we respond to Him now. Here is a church out of fellowship with God And God is knocking at the door. Some of you will remember, I know you've seen, you've seen the pictures of the famous painting by Holman Hunt. And uh, it's hanging in St. Paul's uh, Cathedral in, in London, I believe it is. And it pictures Christ standing by a closed door. There's vines growing all over it. And he has his hand uplifted to knock on the door, and in the other hand, he has a light. The hinges are rusty. They haven't been open in a long time, and there's no knob on the outside. It must be opened from the inside. And that was his way of using this text, this picture, to, to picture Christ standing at the door of our heart, knocking There's no knob on that side. He's not going to force entrance, but He's knocking and He's urging us to open that He might come in and sup with us and us with Him. On one occasion many years ago, there was a little girl and her daddy that that were looking at this picture, and they stood there and they kept looking at the picture for a long, long time. And finally the little girl looked up at her father and asked this question, Daddy, did he ever get in? That's a good place for us to end tonight. If the Lord is knocking at the door to your heart, the question is, are you going to let him in? Are you going to let him in? It might be that for many long months now, God's been knocking at the door of your heart, and you know deep down in your heart, unless unless you're just so blinded that you don't even recognize the pitiful condition that you're in, like the folks in that church, unless, unless you're in their condition, you've been realizing for a long time now, I'm really not in fellowship with the Lord like I should be, like I want to be, like I used to be. And I know He's knocking at the door of my heart. 
And remember, the one knocking at the door is the only one in all of the world that can meet every need we have. And he's knocking on the door of your heart. Will you let him in or turn him away? Let's stand together. Father, how we thank you, Lord, for the beautiful pictures that you've given us in each one of these letters. And I pray that you'll help us to learn something from each and every one of them about the manner in which we ought to live. And although we are separated from them many, many, many long years now, help us to realize that some things are actually still very much the same as they were back then. And we find ourselves troubled with the same problems that some of those churches had. And I pray that we'll, we'll deal with each one of them in, in a wise way. And especially tonight, if you're knocking at somebody's heart door, that they'll let you in. That they might experience the joy of the fellowship that you bring into their life. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.